Well, this morning we're going to take a little break from John. Uh, Instead, we're going to look to the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 36, where David, in beautiful language, teaches us what God is like. When he teaches us this lesson, he uses a strategy called contrasting cases. He contrasts what God looks like against what he calls wicked man. Now, contrast, uh, for us humans, is one of the most important things that allows us to perceive things. Visually, I think that makes sense, right? It's, it's why we have uh, black text on white background instead of uh, green text on blue background. I'm probably not the only one that's accidentally turned all of my text white and thought that I deleted everything I had written in an important document before, right? But it's not just visually. Uh, Jennifer and I recently traveled to Scottsdale, Arizona to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. The trip to Scottsdale contrasted against our everyday life in ways that made it come alive uh, in a new way that it wouldn't have if we hadn't have had that contrast. The contrast of quiet, peaceful, still mornings on our patio against preparing five people to be ready for the day before 7 o'clock in the morning. The contrast of relaxing by the pool to the busyness of work every single day. In fact, our our very breakfast, uh, every morning we ended up ordering the exact same breakfast because we shared this most amazing breakfast burrito, (laughs) trust me, and uh, this, the best description I can give is a Mexican-French toast. And so we shared both of them, and it wasn't just that the flavors of each were so good, but when the spicy, savory chorizo contrasted against the sweet and salty Mexican caramel that was drizzled over the brioche bread, uh, it made both flavors even more alive. I love my life, I do. But the contrast of that trip to the life is what made it so special. It's also important when we're teaching new concepts. This is what David does this morning for us. Um, One of the most important things I try to communicate to new math teachers, I I help people learn how to describe math to other people. One One of the most important things that many people don't realize at first is that contrast is very important when you're teaching a new concept. A lot of people, especially people who have been good at math their whole life, think, well, all I have to do is show someone an example of what I'm talking about, and then they'll see it. Well, it's just not true. Usually what's more useful is to provide a nice example of what you're talking about right next to something that's very similar to that thing but is missing the one new idea you want them to have. The reason why this is so important when we're teaching is because fundamentally teaching is helping people see the world in a way that they weren't able to before. And that's what David does for us this morning. What David does is he first provides an image of man's nature. And then right next to it, he provides an image of God's nature. In one of the commentaries I read, they described it as a glimpse of human wickedness at its most malevolent, and divine goodness in its many-sided fullness. David points deep into the human heart, and then he turns abruptly and points to God and says, God is not like that. 
Listen carefully, because understanding who we are and who we are not is central to gaining an understanding of who this God is. The point that David is trying to make, what he's trying to teach us, is that God is not like us, but he wants to make us like him. So stand with me, if you will, as we look to the text, and let's read from Psalm chapter 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that's not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of, delight, of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down unable to rise. You can be seated. So many of you may not know this uh, about me, but I was a high school football player for a small country high school in East Tennessee. Right before my sophomore year, the state of Tennessee redrew all of the athletic districts, and one of the implications for this was that we now had to play Tyner High School. Now, Tyner High School was a city school, a little larger than us in the middle of Chattanooga, and they had won the state championship the year before. In fact, the week before they played us, they had beaten another Chattanooga team, 98-3. to The newspaper headline leading up to our game asked the question, will they score 100? It's true. Uh, One of Tyner's many, many star running backs was a senior named Kelvin Hughley. Kelvin was a 6-foot, 3-inch, 255-pound, very fast fullback. I, on the other hand, was a 6-foot tall, 155-pound, surprisingly slow linebacker. (laughs) All week long, I had been preparing for one of their best plays in which everyone on the offense blocks our entire defense one way, And Kelvin comes to block me one-on-one while the running back runs behind him. This is in football what's called an isolation play because the whole point of the play is to isolate that defender, me, against our blocker, Kelvin. All week long I had told myself, hey, you have worked so hard. You worked out all winter long. This guy's just a high school kid like you. There's nothing special about him. He puts his pants on one leg at a time. 
And you, you can ask my wife, I'm very good at this kind of self-talk. So um, as I stood there on the field and strapped on my helmet, I looked through my face mask at him, and I thought to myself, I am not afraid of you, Kelvin Hughley. And I wasn't. The first play from scrimmage, the entire offense blocked away from me, and I knew what play was coming. And since I wasn't scared, I ran straight at Kelvin Hughley. The plan was to blow up the play in the backfield, not only to stop that play, but to let Tyner know I was a force to be reckoned with tonight. It was only upon the initial impact that I learned how terribly mistaken I was. Um, I was knocked back four or five feet. Uh, To this day, I honestly can't tell you exactly how my body struck the ground. Um, My head was spinning. This was well before people were concerned about concussions. And um, I I really couldn't get up. And as I laid there on the field, I watched Tyner's running back race the entire length of the field for a touchdown. It was the beginning of a very long night uh, for both me and, and my teammates. In the first four verses here, uh, David paints a picture of a man that's making a very similar but much more dangerous mistake. This man has deluded himself to the point of having no fear of the God that created him. This is this person's defining characteristic. And if we're to understand what this person is, understanding this lack of fear is really, really the first thing we have to dive into. So first, I want you to notice that um, this fear means that he doesn't acknowledge God's right or God's ability to judge sin. Now, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 gives a, a really nice picture of what it looks like to willfully, in an ongoing way, rebel against this God. And he tells us at the end that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of this living God. But not to this man. We see in the text that he's deceived himself into thinking that either God doesn't know of his sin or that God knows of it, but he's not going to hate it or hate me for it. Because of this, he doesn't reject evil. The second piece of this fear is that he he doesn't uh, just lack knowledge of God's right to judge sin. He also lacks an awe for the fullness of God's character. You see, in Psalm 111, the writer tells us that a fear of God is actually the first step towards wisdom. And at first glance, that might not make sense. Why why does fear lead to wisdom? Well, the reason is because fear of God allows us to see God, who he is, as the rightful creator and ruler of the universe. And it's only in that light that we can see the world as it actually is. This person, on the other hand, is still in the dark. The text tells us he doesn't act wisely. This is a person that plots while on his bed. Think about that image just for a second. A person's bed is their most private, intimate place. It's a place where they can be the person that no one else knows that they are. They can wear clothes they would never wear into public. And this person, in his most private place, plots evil. It's not just in his bed that he plots evil. The very next line tells us that he sets himself in a way that's not good. 
A, a literal translation of this really tells us that as he goes about his day, he carries out these things that aren't good. So both on his bed, privately, intimately, and in public, as he goes about his day-to-day life, he carries out this wickedness. This person doesn't simply lack a fear of God's judgment. There's no acknowledgement of God as his maker or that God has the right to rule over him. So why doesn't this person fear God? David tells us here in verse 1 that it's because there's another voice speaking deep within his heart. Look at verse 1. David calls this voice transgression. Now, if you have a, a... a Bible that's a translation other than English Standard Version, you may have noticed that that first verse is translated sometimes very differently from what I read. And it's because it's a very difficult verse to translate into our language. The best I saw was that a nice way of thinking about this verse literally is that what it's saying is that transgression is an oracle deep within this man's heart. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the movie The Matrix, an oracle is someone that has access to supernatural knowledge. It's someone that you go to to tell you how to walk wisely, not only now, but in the future. We can see from the description of the man what this oracle is whispering deep within his heart, and it's the same lie that the enemy has been whispering in our hearts since the garden Focus on yourself. David tells us this person flatters himself to the point of being unable to see his own sin. He's blind to it. Just like this enemy whispered to Eve in the garden, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be wise like he is. This person hears the same thing. And it's the same lie being whispered within our hearts to this day. You see, this lie and the blindness that it produces is really what is most terrifying about this wicked man. It's not just that he carries out evil. It's not just that he plots in private and in public he carries it out. It's that he doesn't know. He doesn't see that it's evil. He thinks he's doing good. It would be one thing if he knew that he was carrying out evil, but what's even scarier is someone who carries it out and has no idea that they're doing something wrong. When you look at people, this is often the case. Even people performing the most heinous crimes usually think they're not the bad ones. When you look closely at movements like Nazi Germany, militant Islam, or or more close to home, Christian crusaders, American slavery... When you look closely, you see that these people genuinely thought they were doing good. David paints a picture for us here of human wickedness as fundamentally rooted in a lack of fear of God. And that lack of fear doesn't just produce evil, but an even more terrifying blindness to that evil. So with man's wickedness, given to us as an example. Let's turn to see how David describes God. At first glance, it's not entirely obvious how this description is a contrast to what he's just described, you know. Um, A more obvious contrast to me would have been David saying, hey, 
God always sees evil. God never plots wickedness. God does not have transgression speaking deep within his heart. God sees sin. He is not blind. That's not what David says. Instead, David contrasts this image of man with God's love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, and his justice. So what we have to ask ourselves is, what do these descriptions tell us fundamentally about how these two things orient themselves? The man is oriented inward. He is looking at himself. Deep within his heart, he's spending time flattering himself. And because of that, he is blind to anything outward. He can't see his sin. He can't see the world as it really is. What we're about to see is that the real contrast here is that God's orientation is outward. That God loves us. God sees the world as it is because he created it. He faithfully loves us in a way that's never-ending. So this is really a contrast of orientations. And these orientations produce fundamentally different natures. So let's spend a little bit of time uh, unpacking what he says about God. First thing I want you to notice is that David is totally at a loss for words here. When he goes to describe God, he has nothing that will fully describe God's love and faithfulness. So the best he can do is muster some images. He gives us a series of metaphors here. The first two he gives us are around God's love and faithfulness. Now, one thing I want you to notice that's not entirely clear from the text is that these two characteristics are meant to be thought of together. Love and faithfulness as a unit. What he tells us is that God's love and faithfulness are like the heavens. They're like the clouds. Now, the reason why we need to think about these two together as a unit is because apart from each other, they mean really different things than they do when they're together, potentially. You see, when a 15-year-old boy, after an afternoon of playing Xbox and eating spicy Cheetos, calls his girlfriend to tell her, I love you, in most cases, he's being genuine. He's telling her about an affection that he has for her in that moment. It's not a problem of him being dishonest. The problem is that there's usually no faithfulness attached to it. In just a few short weeks or months, that feeling is going to move on to something or someone else. And when it does, hearts will be broken. It wasn't a problem of him being dishonest about how he felt with her. The problem was that there was no faithfulness attached to that love On the other hand, you could say in a way that I am unwavering in my faithfulness in regard to the University of Tennessee. What is important to know, however, is that I faithfully cheer against them no matter the opponent. In fact, last year I applied for a job at the University of Tennessee and my kids said, No! How could that possibly be? Um, So we sat down, we had a plan that if I did get a job at the University of Tennessee. What we would do every summer is look at their football schedule. We would go out and purchase the t-shirt for every team that they play against and faithfully attend and cheer for those teams. I am unwavering in this faithfulness, unwavering, but I do not love them. 
You see, God's love and faithfulness come together. David tells us that this love and faithfulness is like the heavens. It's never-ending. It's unsearchable, beautiful beyond description, awe-inspiring. I think to really understand this, we have to try to put ourselves into the mind of an ancient person in the way that they saw the heavens and the clouds. No airplanes, no hot air balloons. The heavens were beautiful, but they were a picture of something that was so vast you could never, never search it. It brought life and it brought death. It was both beautiful and wildly unpredictable. David's basically at a loss for words, so he looks at us and he points to the sky and says, you see that thing that's beautiful, ever-present, visible, yet beyond any of uh, our control? That is what God's love and faithfulness is like. Now, at first thought, you might think, okay, well, to us modern people, this image might not really carry the same meaning, right? We have airplanes, we have hot air balloons, I guess we have spaceships too. But it's not true. You see, the more we've learned, the more meaning it's given to this metaphor. Think about this. Within only the observable part of our universe, that is, the the part of our universe where light has actually had enough time to get to us so that we can see it, scientists estimate that there are over 10 billion trillion stars in over 100 billion galaxies. Now, these numbers are basically meaningless to us, right? They, uh, they have no, we have no real sense of just how big that is. I could have said 10 billion, trillion, trillion, and it wouldn't have really struck you as different than what I just said. But think about this, that 100 billion seconds is over 3,000 years, and that there are over 10 billion, trillion stars. Now, in addition to this, all of this stuff is matter, Right? Uh, In fact, when I was a kid, we learned in school that the universe is made of matter. Well, scientists now believe that matter only makes up a small, small fraction of our universe, something like 4%. They call the rest of it dark matter, which is just a clever way of saying we have no idea. We, We don't know what the rest of this stuff is. So what we can perceive is almost uncountable. It's beyond any understanding that we have of that magnitude, and yet it is only a very small fraction of what the universe is composed of. You see, this God is nothing like the picture of man that David paints for us because his love points outward towards us and is unending. God's righteousness and judgments are the next two that he gives, and these are also meant to be thought as compliments of each other. It's the pair of his righteousness and his judgment that truly describes his character. And David tells us that it's like a mountain. And not just any mountain. The word that he uses here is like a superlative in this language. The highest, grandest mountain that you've ever seen. It's what my translation calls the mountains of God. It's an image of righteousness that is unmovable, that is grand and towers over us. It doesn't shift And their understanding of mountains, that it is eternal. It will always be there. He tells us it's like the depths of the ocean. It can't be searched out. His judgment can't be fully understood. We can never map it all out. Since man is oriented inward, 
He's blind to the true state of the world, which makes him act foolishly and wickedly. But the contrast is a God with faithful love that is oriented outward. A God that sees the world perfectly as he created it. A God whose righteousness is unmovable. So you might say, okay, this God is big, unsearchable, immutable, impregnable. But is he knowable? David answers this beautifully when he says that God's steadfast love is precious. Think about what that means. It means that it's something that's intimate and personal. Yes, God's love stretches beyond the heavens, but it's something that David says he can hold close and know. Think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings here. Now, while Gollum's love is disgusting, uh, that's not the part I want you to think about, he names that ring his precious because he holds it close to him. And if it, if it gets out of his control, then it drives him crazy. It gives us a, a nice picture of how intimate that term is. Also, his righteous judgments are more than we can understand. They can't be moved or changed. But at the same time, David tells us they are a wing under which we can find refuge. We can be both humbled and assured by this image that God's inexhaustible righteousness holds us close and protects us. David tells us we drink from God's river of delight. God gives us the perfect, delightful relationship with him that Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall. We hear that this God is the very fountain of life and that he is the one that takes our blindness away. So this is not only an unsearchable, unmovable God. This is a personal, knowable God whose complexity and mystery and vastness is actually a refuge for us. How can this be? Surely you are sensing a tension here. We get a picture of wicked man, and then what we get as a contrast is a picture of God that both loves in an unending way, but also whose righteousness is like a mountain and cannot be moved. How can this always righteous God that cannot compromise this righteousness possibly love this wicked man? I don't have time to to really dive deeply into the answer to this question, but, but basically what we're looking at here is in one chapter, the entire story of the Old Testament displayed before us, the tension that the Old Testament ends with And I think the nicest way to summarize the answer to that tension is in Romans chapter 5 where Paul says, yeah, how does God love us when he can't move his righteousness? Here's how. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the reason why this perfect, unmovable righteousness is also a refuge for us. So David presents his contrasting cases. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we supposed to respond? Thankfully, David gives us a nice picture. This isn't an image that you can turn away from 
without responding in some way. Maybe you think you can, that you can glance at it and, and move on like I do with the art museum without any real reaction at all. But it's just not possible. So what's really important is that you evaluate how it is that you're responding to it. Maybe you see this God and you're compelled by his beauty, but it's the image of man that doesn't strike you. Maybe you look at that image and you think, I'm not really a wicked person. That guy doesn't describe me. So there's nothing to fear from this God. Yes, he's all righteous, perfect, beyond anything I can comprehend, but there's nothing to fear because I'm not that wicked man. I'm on God's side. If this is you, if this is how you sense yourself responding to this picture, I want to ask you one question. How do you know that you're not that wicked person? How do you know? Is it because deep inside your heart there's a voice telling you you're not? Is it because you tell yourself, hey, I don't do wicked things. I help people. I care for people. If these are your answers, then look closely at the man that David describes. He doesn't see his sin either because he's constantly flattering himself. So if these are your answers, what you're really doing is playing out the image that David's given us. If there's something deep within you that tells you, I am not that wicked person, that's exactly what David said this guy experiences. How do you know that your own self-flattery isn't what's blinding your true nature? David knows better. He knows that he is this person, and he shows it in how he responds. What he shows us is what it looks like to fear this God. If the picture of the man at the beginning of the passage is someone that does not fear God, David shows us what it looks like to fear this God. David's driven to his knees, and he pleads, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. David doesn't look at this God and say, I will never be that wicked man. I will serve you faithfully. I will fight evil. Instead, he begs God, don't let the foot of arrogance come upon me. Don't let the wicked drive me away. Don't let me flatter myself to the point of being blind to my own sin. Because if you do, I will be thrust down and unable to rise. He recognizes that this God is his only hope. This God is not like him. And furthermore, he cannot become like this God. Instead, he needs God to change him, to hold him. And this is what it looks like to fear this God. Because you see, while God is perfectly holy and we are not, he wants to make us holy too. In the previous three weeks, Matt and Bill have been preaching from John chapter 6, where Jesus has described multiple times what it was he came to do, his purpose, and that's to change us. 
I don't have the time to go into the details of what it looks like, but it's crucial to understand this, to really get at what, uh, what we are to learn from this passage. So I encourage you to go to our church's website and listen to those uh, audio recordings of those sermons or to look back to your notes. Because what I want you to see is that in John chapter 6, there are lots of people wanting Jesus to save them. Lots of people, droves of people. But in many cases, they don't recognize what it is they need saving from. They don't see themselves as the wicked man David is describing. And what Jesus tells them is that this knowable God, his work through Jesus is not intended to give material possessions, worldly comfort, political power, or even to provide life's necessities like food and water. All of those things perish. Those are not an image of what it looks like to be under the shelter of his wing. To be under his wing, Jesus tells us in chapter 6 of John, is how David describes here, to drink from his river, to feast on the abundance of his house, what Jesus calls to eat the bread of life that never ends. So go back and look at John chapter 6. Really, really ask yourself how it is that you're responding to this passage. So friends, God's unsearchable love and faithfulness, his impregnable righteousness, and his inexhaustible justice are a refuge for you through Jesus. We see in chapter 36 here of Psalm that God is not like you. So stop and be in fearful awe of his glory. But he wants to make you like him. So church, find refuge under his wing, drink from his river, and feast from his abundant house through Jesus. Pray with me. God, you are not like us. You are our creator. Your love extends beyond the heavens and is always faithful. Your righteous justice is unmovable. We cannot become like you. We cannot meet the demands of this unmovable righteousness. God, thank you for changing us through Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus so that we can find refuge under your wing. Oh, God, continue your steadfast love to us. Keep the foot of arrogance from crushing us and hold us. In Jesus' name.